Hello, this is the Order of the Mustard Seed podcast, and I'm your host, Jill Weber. Hey there, Joe Steinke here uh, with another 24-7 core training for you. Uh, we have just the privilege of inviting two of my favorite people to give voice to a teaching on this idea of apostomonasticism, which we'll describe in a second, <laughs> but uh, which is a funny word, a funny term, but has some really great characteristics that have been a historical strain within the church, but also something that we as a movement has stumbled into as, as expressing. And uh, the two voices that are really carrying this uh, conversation today are going to be Pete Gregg. Hey, Pete. Hey, great to be with you all. Pete's uh, on the Isle of Wight in mm -hmm. uh, a wonderful new space. So such a pleasure to have you, Pete, with us. And then Jill Weber is with us. And where are you, Jill, right now? I'm sitting in a Waverly Abbey house on the Waverly Abbey estate, um, not too far from Guilford in the UK. All right. And I am sitting in the handsome little cottage that my wife and I occupy in a little town, a little lake town in southern Wisconsin. But uh, yeah, let's get into this. So, Pete, you know, um, speaking of Wisconsin, there was a I forget how many years ago, gosh, it's got to be, oh, I don't even know, at least 12, where yeah. we, host, we hosted, I think it was um, one of the first convening of the communities network within the U.S. that was just, just a seedling of relationships. And Yes, you did. It was, was it January? I still haven't was, warmed up. I'm still cold from that. It was February in Wisconsin oh. in the middle of winter, oh. and it was sub-zero Fahrenheit temperatures here. And you guys had you guys didn't even have the right coats or anything. We had to borrow you winter coats. You you couldn't move from one venue to the other without your nose freezing. It was so cold. <laughs> Three thousand years, my forefathers evolved to deal with rain and literally nothing else. <laughs> I'm good at rain, but your climate did things to me that are still probably like damaging my neural pathways. <laughs> uh, uh, like it was an amazing gathering. I, yeah, it seriously, was an amazing I, gathering. I loved it. I loved it. I loved it. It was it was brilliant. Genuinely, I'm joking. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> you were touring um, several communities in the states but that was kind of a focal point of landing this um encouragement to the seedling communities that were popping up in the u.s and you carried this uh message and came came with this new term this you coined a term called apostomonasticism mm -hmm. and you just kind of talked about that as an idea with us. Um, I'd love you to just go off on that for a bit. What is it that characterizes this idea of apostomonasticism? Hey, Joe, thanks. 
this is like being with two of my favorite people talking about some of my favorite stuff. And all, all I know is I so wish that all of us, not just the three of us, but all those of you guys listening, we, we ideally would be sitting around a fire curated by Bishop Steinke, uh, talking these things and praying these things out. Um, I know it sounds really pretentious. Apostomasticism is a, a term I came up with. I had I invented it not because um, I, I, I wanted to create um, opaque language, but because I couldn't find language for what I was trying to feel my way towards in terms of the intersection of spirituality, community, and mission. And the strange thing was that as I look back into history, uh, I, I, I felt very familiar with the motifs of Christian community that, that have shaped the landscape, certainly of Europe, um, to this day. The, the, the sort of monastic, prayerful, uh, aromatic instincts uh but that i couldn't quite find that in contemporary western society and i i still remember um you know when we when we first lived in the us 2004 through 2005 i went down to california actually i was speaking at it was when everyone's talking about emergent everything everything was emerging and uh you know, I, I went to speak at like the most emerging of emerging events. You, you can believe how like hip this thing was. And I talked about monasticism and they were just like, what are you even talking about? I remember people taking me aside saying, that's just some European thing, but that's not a deal here. Um, and now it's really interesting because in the US it's gone the other way. And Anything to do with monasticism, everyone's really interested in, but in almost an unhealthy way, I think. It's like if something's in Latin, they think it's true. <laughs> if, if it's old, they think it's authentic. <laughs> and actually, a lot of the old stuff is terrible. And uh, there's a lot of nonsense written in Latin. So it's been interesting to see that in that journey. So let me explain why I came up with that language. Um, I had spent a number of years at that point planting churches. And um, when I say that, I, I mean congregational expressions of church. You know the kind of thing, some kind of a big meeting or a medium-sized meeting on a Sunday, small groups during the week, um, programs, strong community, not, not, not a sort of disembodied programmatic thing, just a strong sense of community and mission. but. Um, that was that. And I was beginning to discover monasticism and try and work out how does this fit together. One of the challenges, the very etymology of the word monasticism comes from monos, um, the Latin for one, you know, solitary, single, only. And um, technically, really, I'm more interested in friaries than monasteries. Monasteries are where you withdrew away from the world to be alone with God and maybe do a little bit of farming. Um, but the friaries were these kind of apostolic missional 
centers that were deeply prayerful. The Franciscans are the obvious example there. So um, one of the defining moments for me, Joe, was um, we all read a book by a guy called Patrick Johnson called The Church is Bigger Than You Think, in which he traced three great traditions of church going back 2,000 years. And he said, yes, one of them is what you might call the, the congregational church. You congregate, so it's all about meetings, out of the world. So it's often about membership and defining who's in and who's out. Um, and he said that's a model of church that has risen to ascendancy, particularly since the Enlightenment, because um, it's just really convenient. If you're doing a nine-to-five job, an expression of church where you can rock up on Sunday and maybe midweek and say, I've done church, just fits really well with the Industrial Revolution and everything that came after. And so the parish church, the congregational expression, now when you say church to people, they think that. That's what they think. When If I said to you, we've been planning churches, you think we're doing that. Um, but it doesn't take, you don't have too much Bible study to go, the church must be bigger than that. I mean, just look at the book of Acts, you know, they didn't have buildings. Um, they seemed to gather every day of the week, not just on Sundays. Um, breaking of bread was in homes um, uh, and so on. So um, I'm having the Joe Biden problem here. I've got a fly buzzing around. I don't know if it's like, a, it's not a Democrat thing. Don't judge me. Having a fly in the room is is totally apolitical, okay? It might be a emissary of Satan, the Lord of the Flies, I don't know. Um, so I digress. The church is bigger than you think. The other two expressions that Joe Biden, Joe Biden, oh my goodness, there you go, Patrick Johnson uh, describes, delineates, are these, the congregation, Joe, just hold it together, uh, the congregational, but then he says, you've always through 2000 years of church history had what he calls the monastic and the apostolic. So the apostolic expression is missional. The Greek apostos means ones who are sent. I know that when you say apostolic to certain traditions, you some traditions say, well, that was, you know, the, the 12 apostles. And they the, we've had the apostles. <laughs> they, they've gone. And then others, if you're more uh, Pentecostal, uh, you probably say, you know, apostles are these kind of men. It is mostly men in shiny suits at the top of these big pyramids, um, trying not to fall off the pyramids, but quite often they do end up falling off the pyramids. If they stay on the pyramid, they hurt themselves. So, um, so, so, so but that's not the, the biblical understanding of the apostolic. Biblically, the apostolic, which in Ephesians 4, 1 Corinthians 12, you know, the, the, the church is built on, on apostles, uh, prophets, pastors, uh, teachers, evangelists and then one of the lists has ops or admin you know alongside that and so um the apostolic impulse is that let's go you know let let's move let's obey the great commission let's make disciples of the nations let's fight injustice let's preach the gospel let's let, let's get busy and um so examples of, uh, of uh, the apostolic uh, impulse could be the Franciscans um, who, who changed the face of, of, of history. And another example of the apostolic uh, expression of church could be YWAM, um, which is controversial, but I don't apologize for it. 
uh, every YWAM base I've ever been to, uh, what I've found is <laughs> that they're in complete denial about being church, even though they're living together in community, they're studying the Bible, they're praying for each other, they're discipling one another, they're going out to make disciples of the nations, and half of them having communion as well. But apparently they're not church. That's because they've embraced an ecclesiology that says the only legitimate expression of church is the congregational one. Therefore, poor, lovely, sweet little YWAM DTSs are sent off to attend a church on Sunday, which they feel no connection with whatsoever because their real discipleship life is happening, you know, throughout the rest of the week in the YWAM base. And uh, so so Patrick Johnson says, it's nonsense. We've got to understand that that apostolic movement that's in the church is an ex- legitimate expression of church. And uh, I'm going to be a little controversial here, but I want to just slightly suggest that maybe the reason that YWAM although it is changing on this, uh, is all, is in denial on that issue, is also that their economic model, their funding model, is dependent on them not being the church and getting money out of the people who consider themselves that they are the church. The church was always meant to be the missionary uh, movement. You weren't ever meant to have to invent missionary societies. The church is the missionary society. It's not the church that has a mission. It's the mission of God that has a church, right? So that's the apostolic and as, as a church planter, as someone with a heart for the lost, a uh, desire to fight injustice, I'm really interested not just in helping people to congregate out of their jobs on a Sunday to get a bit of Bible teaching, but helping us to get into the world and change it. And then you've got the third expression of church that Patrick Johnson outlines, which is the monastic. And, uh, you know, we can trace that right back to the Desert Fathers uh, and probably earlier probably to the Essenes and John the Baptist, but that's another story. Um, And what was Jesus' relationship with the Essenes and the Qumran community? That is another very interesting conversation, but for another time. Um, And so uh, that that was, you know, if we take the, the desert mothers and fathers, they were the ones who, when Constantine um, was converted, allegedly, um, I'm not convinced that it was a true conversion because his vision that converted him, he saw the Lamb of God, Jesus, um, carrying this flag and saying, in my name, go forth and conquer. And it just doesn't seem to me very much like the Jesus I know of the Beatitudes. It seems very convenient for an emperor. And also (laughs) he kept his pagan priest on right till the end. So who knows? I... The, the Episcopal traditions hate it when, when I say this, but I think we have to seriously question the sincerity of the conversion of Constantine. I think it's far more likely that he finally realized that we can't beat him, join him. So he starts to pull together the church to, uh, you know, um, work out the creeds and, and, you know, all the rest of it, because suddenly he says, I'm going to chuck the keys to every pagan shrine to Christians. They can become churches. Every pagan festival can become a Christian festival, which is why Christmas happens on the pagan festival and all the rest of it. And uh, and so he Christianizes paganism. And suddenly the church, um, who are these previously persecuted, now scarily popular and powerful and rich followers of the Nazarene, the penniless Nazarene, the friend of the poor, has a dilemma. And some people say, this is wonderful. It's complicated, but it's wonderful. We need to stay in Constantinople uh, and try and work out what does the kingdom of God look like? What does church look like? Now we've got buildings. Now we're popular. 
and so on. Now, now we're in and out of the emperor's palace. Um, and then others said, this is nonsense. This is not the way of Jesus. Power corrupts. Um, let's get out of here. And so they moved into either the Egyptian or the Syrian deserts. Um, and they just sought to live ascetic, holy lives away from the great throbbing metropolis and to pray a lot, did a lot of spiritual warfare. And, uh, you know, we know initially about them from the writings of Athanasius. And, uh, and you have people like Alexander of the Desert. And they became enormously influential. People would travel out from the great uh, cities to seek counsel from these godly prayerful uh, men and women. And then inevitably, uh, economies and communities grew up around the great praying people, exactly like Mike Bickle. You know, he's a modern-day desert father who's gone out into a, a complete uh, no-man's land, I know, because I used to live in Kansas City, and he doesn't live in Kansas City. He lives in, the, like, the dog end of it on a strip <laughs> mall somewhere and uh, in, in a sort of soulless building and begins to just cry out to God because he is a godly man who loves the Lord and says, we just got to prepare for the bride, the bride to, for the return of the bridegroom. We've got to get ready for that. So his solution is... Don't engage in the politics of the city. Don't do it too much. Uh, you know, don't 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 try and solve all that. Let's just be holy. This is a two thousand year old impulse that Mike Bickle is channeling. And then what you find is everyone's very attracted to that. So one thing happens, and people do internships, and before you know it, you've got a community and an economy that's growing up around the godly leader. That's how monasticism really began with Pacomius and all the rest of it. Long before Benedict codified a way of life that became predominant and so we can trace that monastic impulse right the way through uh, which is less worried about apostolic mission and certainly couldn't care less about congregating people and is let us club together and push into holiness and to prayer so here you have these three traditions congregational apostolic and monastic and as I looked at them I thought well I've spent you know, whatever it was then, 10, 15 years of my life planting congregational churches. I know how to do it. If we keep doing this for the rest of my life, will we have got the job done? And I realized, no, uh, there's something else. We need the apostolic breakthrough thing and we need the monastic impulse. We need something that's qualitative, not just quantitative, something that's not just about lots and lots of big churches with lots of people doing alpha courses, something that is about uh, encountering the presence of God that I find in that monastic tradition. Add to that the fact that when you live in the UK, and Jill knows this because where she literally is sitting right now, where she lives, we are haunted by the ghosts of monasticism because before the Romans came to the British Isles um, to plant the kinds of churches that have become parish churches and congregational we had monasteries. Uh, the Celts called them the Muintia, and these were centers uh, of, of prayer and worship, of education. They were the schools. The first schools were the, were the praying people. Um, they, were, they were medical centers. They were centers of social justice, care for the poor, uh, uh, places of hospitality, places of startling creativity. If you've ever been to Dublin and seen the Book of Kells, uh, just, I mean, just stunning creativity. 
and and they I don't really know what they did on Sundays. I suspect they met, but it kind of that wasn't the thing. They were colonies of heaven. They were centers of shalom. They were forerunners. They were, if you like, N.T. Wright's theology that the world is being renewed, worked out in an actual community, worked out in farming, worked out in, in bookbinding, worked out in eating together. And uh, so I realized that our own tradition in the UK and really around Europe wasn't pure monasticism in the sense of withdrawing from Constantinople to be holy. It was deeply apostolic as well, uh, because they were preaching the gospel to kings and queens. There's a lovely story about Aidan. You know, he'd been off seeing the king of Northumbria, who's very impressed with him and so impressed that he gave him an incredible horse. <laughs> and good old Aidan uh, rode the horse out of the palace. And the very first beggar he met, he jumped off and gave the beggar the horse. And the king was furious. And Aidan said, but I thought you'd <laughs> given it to me. So I thought I'd give it to this poor man here. So they were deeply apostolically sort of engaged. But you read the writings of some of those great Celtic saints. They longed for their cell. They longed for their cave. They longed for the place they could withdraw to pray and commune with God. And then the more they prayed, the more they found themselves propelled out, infectious with the gospel to preach the message of Jesus and fight injustice. And so it's tidal. It's, it's like a lunar cycle. It's like breathing. There is the inhaling of the spirit in the place of prayer. And then there is the exhaling in mission and justice. And I don't know about you, I find it hard to inhale without then exhaling. I find it hard to keep exhaling without wanting to inhale. Uh, there's something in me that wants to deeply withdraw to my books and my place of prayer, my place of reflection. But then if I spend all my time there, there's something in me that says, we've got to go and fight human trafficking. We've got to go and preach the gospel. We've got to go and plant churches. We've got to go and throw some parties. And so I found, oh, what do I do with the fact that in myself, I have this apostolic impulse, but also this monastic imitation. I see that in the history of our country and these extraordinary communities that have given rise to the very topography of our land, anywhere in Ireland that has kill, K-I-L, on the front of the name, was originally a cell, a hermit cell. It was a person of prayer who, who, who you know, became uh, a community, a city. Uh, go to any uh, town or city in, in Europe and you're going to find streets called Abbey this or Friar that. You're going to drink beer that's still brewed in honor of the monasteries and so on. So I thought, wow, this was a type of spirituality that shaped culture, that, that defined the sociology and anthropology and even the architecture of society. And, um, and then as I finally, and I'll come into land here, uh, Joe, I thought, um, let's think about 24-7. On one hand, I got into praying night and day because Sammy and I had planted our second church and we just became spiritually hungry and started a prayer room because we realized we were bad at prayer and we need to get good at it. And um, I think our initial theology of prayer was basically it's a big fat red switch and if you do it hard enough and long enough revival will come 
(laughs) (laughs) And that got beaten out of us pretty quick. You know, and I mean it deeply. I got beaten out of me by, you know, my wife slipping into continual repeated epileptic fits and realizing my prayers don't seem to work very well to stop her epilepsy. So how are they going to bring in revival? And realizing I think I need to go deeper. I think I need to become a prayer rather than say prayer. I need to move prayer from a verb to a noun. I think uh, I need to discover contemplative prayer. So I still believe in petition, intercession, intercession, spiritual warfare. I still passionately pray for revival and awakening. But I think it has to start with me. Uh, it has to it has to start in me. And so uh, somehow my own apostolic impulse was was beginning to tango with this contemplative, very broken. Uh, part of me, but, but but reflective part of me, creative part of me, and and twenty four seven. Here we are. You know, we've been praying nonstop for twenty plus years. Um, that's a deeply monastic thing. Every prayer room is you know is a cell. Um, you know, Jill is doing phenomenal work establishing rhythms of prayer around the world. That's becoming normative. Um, so there's a strong monastic impulse, but we've also, and this is very strong, especially in America, got a growing family of communities, of churches and of monasteries and houses of prayer that are profoundly apostolic. And so I just felt like, and I hate that this sounds quite um, uh, pretentious, but we need some language for what we are doing that will combine the breathing in and the breathing out the contemplative and the intercessory the apostolic and the monastic and so aposto is the mission piece and monastic is the prayer piece and and i i increasingly believe that people who are good on activity on mission and justice must learn to pray we must learn to pray if COVID-19 has taught us anything we must learn to pray and for those of us who are more naturally mystical and introverted perhaps and prayerful we must learn to engage we must learn to uh, take the revelations of the father the presence of the father and translate them into the culture of a world that is in deep, deep crisis. And so, whether I, I, you know, I don't care whether any of you ever use the phrase apostomonastic. I'd advise you not to use it like at Thanksgiving dinner or, like, you know, at Starbucks because they'll think you're an idiot. But like, I want you to hear the heart of it. We're called to be withdrawing and engaging. So that's it from me. Jill, over to you. Is that okay? Um, Is that too long? No, that's brilliant. Thank you, Pete, for that survey of history and how we as a movement have stumbled our way into uh, trying to hold those in a beautiful synergy together that work together to fill out uh, this this uh, 
this this body function you know of breathing in and prayer and exhaling and mission and participating in the in the 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 generative nature of god wanting to establish his kingdom in the earth and yet also the communion you know of the first commandment to be uh in this belovedness of god in prayer and holding space for that just being without any other agenda you know and somehow in the middle of that we hold space for uh people to encounter that and in somehow we've been graced as 24 7 prayer to have that strain in it so thank you for that um jill you uh i'd love you to speak to your insights personally uh as being um a pioneer of a new monastic community in hamilton ontario and also um, recently been appointed as the global convener of the Order of the Mustard Seed, which maybe you can explain a bit more of what that is to us. But how does, how does your vocation, your, your history, and your current reality fit within this idea of apostle monasticism? <laughs> well, I'd love to answer that. And I'll have to do it in just a minute because Kirk's locked himself out of the house and is frantically messaging me <laughs> downstairs. Well, whilst, whilst Jill attends You do that. Go rescue that, him. <laughs> listen, listen to this from Augustine in the City of God. He says this, No man or woman has a right to lead such a life of contemplation as to forget in his own case, the service due to his neighbor. Nor has any man a right to be so immersed in active life as to neglect the con- contemplation of God. So they, there you have it in, in the city of God, St. Augustine. We, we, we all have to combine the contemplative and the active. And, mm. um, and, and that's not just individuals, that's us as communities. And I know some of you love the theory, so you're like getting off on this. And others of you are like, what's he on about? This stuff gets really practical. Like, and I think that's some of what Jill is going to segue into in a moment. This is this is super practical. It's like, you know, at Emmaus right now, we have three prayer meetings a day. Like, like you know, there's just a, a, a monastic rhythm of prayer. Um, you know, Jill is sitting where she's sitting because she is busy reopening a 1,400-year-old site as a place of prayer. Um, and, and, and so this stuff gets real practical and there are budget sheets and uh, programs and training and all the rest of it. And, and Joe, Joe epitomizes this as he, you know, cares for communities and churches and leaders like you guys but then sits out on his porch and is quiet before the Lord and swims in the lake. You know, this is this is a very ancient rhythm. Um, so, Joe, I bet you've got some stuff to say while we're waiting for Jill to save her marriage. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, I find it um, personally very... Uh, very uh, accommodating in being part of a movement that can celebrate 
these things and hold them together as a rhythm of life and know that um, there's breath uh, there, there's breath and things to expand into and we have uh, the luxury of of being informed from all the great traditions of the church but then also creating a, a space together that can be informing one another and so this is why the congregational church has the the prayer space and why the monastic community has its you know its open table you know to the community it's it's resourcing the church of the city how to pray but also engage in mission and and so I think the thing I love about it is that there's also room for uh, coherent unity together as a people with a variety and diversity of expression that, and that, and that we, we, need, we need what each of them bring to us in their unique uh, design and their unique character. And um, so as Jill comes back to us from the rescue of Kirk, actually that sentence is kind of fun because the name Kirk means, you know, isn't it church? <laughs> well, actually his name is Kirkland, which means land of churches. Aha, uh -huh, land of churches. <laughs> Even <go>. better. <laughs> well, here we have Jill back to talk to us about the rescue of the land of churches. <laughs> Through monastic, pasto monastic. She just let the church into the monastery. So this is prophetic. I'll tell them it will make him feel much less frustrated. Everything's prophetic, Jill. Yeah, no, I think the way I want to start the conversation is just a little bit of my journey because I was trained as a church planter. That's what I, for six years, I had been apprenticing in a, in a local church and was all set to kind of move towards ordination and started out. And then I bumped into an expression of new monasticism of the house of prayer. I made the mistake of going to a prayer meeting one night. Um, we, we've mentioned Mike Bickle, but, but Kansas City, a, a, a team from the house of prayer in Kansas City, which I agree with Pete, this is a, a modern expression of what I call the monastic experiment. And, um, and I was just confronted with these modes of praying. And, and, and I think what was, was just kind of got me was, was they had adopted and, and contextualized in their modern culture, this ancient monastic tradition of praying the scriptures. And, uh, and I sort of bumped into that and was just arrested by it. I was writing on it the other day. I said, I, I came, I saw and I was conquered. <laughs> Everything inside of me began to resonate. And they talked about a mode of praying and a mode of being and a mode of partnership with God as he was at work on the earth through prayer. And, and I had been ready to partner with God through activity and, and church planning and getting out there. And, and um, yeah, so that was an on-ramp for me. It, it, was a, it was a startling interruption in my life into the prayer movement. And I actually it was so strong that in that moment, I knew that I thought I had been training for six years to plant churches and I had instead been training to plant new monastic expressions or houses of prayer and so yeah that just took me on a whole journey and and um 
I, I need to be reminded of the question. <laughs> what are we talking about? <laughs> well, no, that's great. That's so that's that's brought you to kind of the personal um, where you find maybe a an expression that fits you personally and a sense of calling to uh, bring both your apostolic impulse, but also this monastic expression. And so why don't you describe a little bit about you planted in Hamilton, Ontario, what characterized that community in its work, and then how you've landed now in the UK and the roles that you're in and and then maybe end with like where you're sitting and what's going on you know with with this moment so yeah i think the invitation for us was to to build and and uh to become really a house of prayer and uh, i i had no idea how costly both the building and the becoming would be over the years but we started what i i do i call new monasticism the big experiment it's like, what, what from these ancient traditions can we pull into the now for us and dust them off and find the treasures and begin to, uh, to work them out in our own context? And, and that took us on a 17-year journey. And it was a journey. It was fascinating in the way that the Spirit would lead us because I think what was, was uh, so vital for us in the journey was this practice of discernment. We didn't want to just build. We didn't want to read a book and build it. We wanted to listen to where God was at work building and shaping not only ourselves, but the communities around us and respond. And so for me, part of the, the monastic impulse is you create space for God, that space for encounter. And then you invite God to come and fill that space however he wants, which is extremely risky because <laughs> he doesn't necessarily want the things that we want. And we were constantly surprised in the direction that it took us. And it took us, we started out at a very comfy, our first house of prayer was in a Christian television station in a, in a suburban town. So we had 24-7 security and we thought, great, 24-7 security, we can do 24-7 prayer. That's where we started. And then we went on this long pilgrimage journey and we ended up in a, in a basement of a social enterprise cafe in a red light district in one of the poorest neighborhoods in Canada, <laughs> you know, and and relocating, many of us actually moved from suburbs in the edges of our city right into the center of our city and, and began to explore what does it look like for us to be the, the loving presence of a people of prayer right in the heart of intractable poverty, you know, generation after generation of darkness and, and hopelessness and despair, you know, and it was intense. Like I could measure my street by how many police cars you know, could line up nose to nose on the street. We had a broth around the corner. I could sit in my in my backyard and watch drug deals happening in the backyard kitty corner of my neighbor. But what does it look like for us to, to relocate? There's there's a wonderful um, piece of work been done uh, uh, where they they a group of new monastic practitioners in the states has has sort of outlined these twelve marks of new monasticism. But one of them is relocation to the abandoned places of empire, right? That's the apostolic impulse to push to the edges and to see where God is at work there. You know, they also talk about sharing economic resources with fellow community members. We lived in intentional community together. We, uh, it talks about hospitality to a stranger is another mark of new monasticism. So we opened our home and had community dinners with people who normally we would meet at a soup kitchen 
but wanted instead to invite to a family table, which was a very different dynamic and a far costlier one <laughs> altogether. You know, we another mark of new monasticism is this humble submission to Christ's body, the church. And I think the invitation for us was not to set ourselves, go, oh, the church doesn't know how to do this. But we, we knew monastics. We figured it out. We know how to do this, right? We didn't want to posture our hearts in our community that way. And God in his kindness opened up sort of this relational opportunity with the, the church in our city that was working together in mission. They wanted to see, they wanted to serve together for the good of the city. But they, they approached us and said, we're good at serving. <laughs> we're not so good at praying together for the good of the city. Can you come and help us? And so we had the opportunity to just hand in glove, love and work with and serve and grace the church in our city with the gifts that we had been given. And I think another important part of, of our journey, and uh, and I think this speaks also to the larger 24-7 ethos, is, is that we didn't want to build a big sort of house of prayer organization of our own. We made an early decision. Do we want to build an organization or do we want to shift the culture of our city? And I think this is part of the apostolic mandate is to create, to, to cultivate, to architect culture. And we wanted to see culture shift and, and change, particularly amongst the 20 to 30 year olds in our city. So as an example for us, uh, when we first started our experiments in intentional Christian community, which we started because we heard an audio course from the 24 seven website on it. And we listened to the audio course and we're like, sure, let's give it a go. <laughs> So we did. We started moving into houses together. Um, there was, there was, we'd only heard of one or two small sort of peripheral communities that had tried that. But after we'd done it for eight years, it was normal Christian living in the interior city with, with, with young sort of kingdom advancing kids. They were all getting houses and all moving in together and, and all exploring and experimenting. What could it look like for our home to become a base, a, a place of shalom for our neighborhood? So we wanted to shift culture. And, and so that, that's that been part of the grace for us. So that was a wonderful 17 and a half years of exploration. Um, and, and in particular, I think one, one bit was fun for us with regards to the, the apostolic monasticism is we saw lots of, of, of young justice activists at work in our city, working really hard, you know, sex trafficking and working with homeless kids and, and we had tons and tons of vulnerable children in our city and doing all this kind of work, but they had no idea how to do it with any kind of sense of rhythm and sustainability. They had the breathing out. They didn't have the breathing in. And so, so we had the opportunity to create some spiritual formation frameworks for them to take them through on a journey to learn how to breathe in <laughs> and how to, to, to actually to cultivate spiritual practices that would shape their lives to give them what they needed for the long haul of that, that cutting edge work they were doing in their city. And, uh, and that was, and continues to be uh, probably one of our favorite bits about what we do. So that's, that was back at home, our little new monastic community. And, uh, and so in, in the midst of that, we, we learned about, stumbled on the other great monastic experiment within 24 seven prayer, which is the order of the mustard seed. And so, I mean, Pete could probably speak into this. Yeah, do you wanna talk a little bit about the origin, sort of 2005, Pete? And, and how that bubbled well, up Jill, in you guys? And Jill, you're really the expert on this, but I'll, I'll, I'll do the backstory very quickly and then you, you fill it in. But yeah, we, um, 
you know, it's a weird thing when you life gets hijacked by a prayer movement. I mean, that's that was never in anyone's career plan, right? <laughs> and uh, we spent the first one or two, three, four years thinking this will stop any moment and we can get on with the rest of our lives and go back to being normal people. <laughs> and then uh, in the five-year mark, someone said to us, you know, you need to get ready for the 10-year mark. And we're thinking this, like a decade, that's a chunk of our lives. And um, so we had to begin to ask questions about not just how do we do lots and lots and lots of praying, but what does this look like sustainably in terms of community and personally in terms of spiritual formation and discipleship? And we found a key. We went back to, you know, we'd been inspired by the Moravians and the 100-year prayer meeting at Hernhurt under the leadership of Count Ludwig Niklas von Zinzendorf. And, of course, they were the ultimate example of apostomonasticism, you know, prayed night and day, highly mystical, but were the first to take the gospel to many nations on earth, paid an enormous price to do, to do so. And so um, as we looked at their story, we realized the key, like the absolute essence of why they were who they were, was the fact that their leaders in Zendorf had entered into a, a series a vow when he was a university student at Hall Academy and then when he was at Wittenberg with some friends they had decided to uh, wear a ring that said in Greek exactly what this one does I don't know if the camera will be able to pick this up but uh <laughs> anyway it's on that it says no 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 one lives for themselves and their vow was to be true to Christ, to be kind <clears throat> to people. I love the echo uh, back to the 18th, early 18th century there, <clears throat> that they, they didn't just say we want to love people, which can sound awfully religious, but we're going to be kind to everyone. And then to take the gospel to the nations, you know, there you've got the, the monastic impulse of true to Christ, and then you've got the apostolic impulse of, Gospels and the Nations, and the two are mediated through the value, the culture of kindness. is beautiful. And I just kind of thought, that'll do me. At the time, my life felt very chaotic, and I felt the personal need of some boundedness. Um, and I was sick and tired of Christian metaphor and hype. And I was like, yeah, but how do we do this stuff? Like, what does it mean to be a disciple in, in this brave new world? And so uh, it was terrifying, but we decided to revive the ancient order of the mustard seed, which was the name Zinzendorf had eventually come up with for his order. And, and I should say the reason that we now realize the reason that when Zinzendorf, you know, was approached by a bunch of refugees to live on his land, the reason he said, yeah, sure, have you know, have a load of it, build a village on it, was he'd made a promise to be true, true to Christ and kind to people, right? And the reason why after five years of henhood, when they're all rowing and dividing, he called them together aged uh, 27 and told them to sort it out and repent was he'd made a vow to be true to Christ. And then the reason why after five years, almost to the day of nonstop prayer, he sent out the first missionaries of the Reformation, 
from Hanhoek, not Luther didn't do it, it was Zinzendorf, was he had made a vow to take the gospel to the nations at a time where Christendom believed that basically evangelism had been done. You know, everyone's Christian. So, so that vow had profoundly shaped his whole life and mission. And, and, and you know, it was amazing. The, the king of Denmark and archbishop of Canterbury, you know, a Native American indigenous king, Tom Achichi was a member of the order. All sorts of people were members of the order of the mustard seed. So we decided to revive it. We went to Holy Trinity Church in Clapham, London, which is where the Clapham sect, if you're familiar with Will, William Wilberforce and the Clapham sect, they used to worship. And so we gathered there and my knees were knocking. I don't know if I've ever been so scared in all my life, but I think it was February 2005 we entered lifelong vows of the order of the mustard seed. We promised for the rest of our lives to be true to Christ, kind to people, take the gospel to the nations, not to live for ourselves, but to live for one another. And, um, and, the, and, and that was the beginning of really reviving the order of the mustard seed. Many people either wear the ring or they have a tattoo to mark it out. And, um, and then, and then we we've now, we are now officially recognised by the Church of England as a, a religious order, alongside the Franciscans and everyone else. And we've been through a process with a number of bishops and abbots to do that. And part of that was saying we need to put some governance in place. And we asked Jill Weber to be our first uh, global convener. And Jill, I'm delighted to say, agreed, and is just. Now, I think about a year into her second term, she's only allowed to do two terms. So she's only got, they are three-year terms. She's done, this is your fourth year, right, Jill? Okay. Is that right? I have three more three more years to go. I've just finished my okay, third year. Okay, you've got three years, more so. years to go. And, and then she's not allowed to be like the general convener anymore. So it could be anyone. And um, someone recently said to me, a bishop recently said to me, I think the Order of the Mustard Seed is the fastest growing religious order in the world, uh, which I thought was really encouraging until I realized that <laughs> most religious orders are declining and, and the ones that are growing, they do everything slowly. So it's not as impressive as it sounds, but there's something amazing <laughs> under, under Jill's leadership. So Jill, just fill people in with that, that aspect of our rule of life, our way of life, and the architecture that gives to the way that we build apostomonastic community. Yeah, thanks, Pete. I think well, the work, the early work that the Order of the Mustard Seed folks did after 2005 was just start to look at, you know, what are the what are the practices that hold these that, that and flesh these promises that we have made, and so identified six key practices. So prayer, of course, creativity, mercy and justice, mission, learning, and hospitality, and and begin to formulate together in in the first of our new monastic sort of communities that we had in 24-7 prayer, which was the Reading Boiler Room. They created a boiler room rule of life and just said, so if we're going to live into these three vows and these six practices, yeah, we'll do it individually, but then how do we actually do it together? How do we shape a common rule of life together? So that was an early experiment in that. And uh, But but since 2005, Pete and, and the whole first cohort just as individuals begin to live into these vows and into this, these spiritual practices and just really quietly, you know, just, um, they didn't make a big brouhaha. They didn't try and build it too much. Um, uh, 
but then it's just we've just moved into a new season eh? it's been a step change hasn't it Pete and just um, really formalizing everything and um, getting proper constitutional documents visitors etc and so um, uh, and then beginning to 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 just see it expand I think a fun part of the, of the work of uh, the rule, the order of the mustard seed, but also part of the other 24-7 family is the establishment of Lectio 365. I think that's an important part of who we are because what we've done with this daily devotional app is we've taken our three vows and our six practices and we're sharing it with the world in, in this little teeny daily devotional 10 minutes a day meditating on scriptures together and letting the word and those six practices shape our lives. And so we've got, you know, 60,000 regular users who are going on the journey with us right now and, and being invited into these lifestyles of, of prayer and mission and justice coming together in a beautiful fusion away. And so that's been just an exciting part of, of 24-7's journey and also the Order of the Mustard Seed. So three of the four main contributors are, are members of the Order. So really, it's our prayer book but we're just sharing it with the rest of the world. <laughs> and uh, So Jill, if I were to be interested in um, leaning in that direction, uh, exploring what it might mean to individually pursue uh, coming into the order of the mustard seed, what would be my process? The process, it depends how, how if you're coming out of a 24 seven context or not. So if you're, if you're part of, if you're coming, just maybe you've read or, or participated in Lectio 365 and you love it and you've looked in the about section, you're like, oh, there's a thing called 24-7 prayer and the order of the mustard seed. And they would contact our office or our website, uh, which orderofthemustardseed.com. And then we would invite those people on a three-month period of exploration where they would learn about 24-7 prayer. We would get them to read Pete's books. Red Moon Rising and Dirty Glory, which is actually, it's his exploration of those motifs in his own life and, and how that's kind of spilled over to create this whole movement by the grace of God. And so we'd introduce them to that narrative and that story and the ethos of the whole 24-7 movement. And, uh, and, and, and then because 24-7 is highly relational in the Order of the Mustard Seed, they would need to meet a member of the Order and get to know them and build some relationship with them. At a point at which then we're, we say, okay, well, you kind of get a sense of who we are, a sense that perhaps you want to go on this journey. And then they would begin sort of a nine-month period of preparation. And so in that period of preparation, they would be put in learning a spiritual formation cohorts all online at this juncture uh, with, with other people who set their heart on pilgrimage, who want to learn and grow. And during that, that season of preparation, there'd be biblical reflection. They, we've been encouraged them to have a spiritual director or a soul friend, somebody they meet with one-on-one -on -one to talk about God's invitations to them in the midst of that journey. We encourage them to go on mission or pilgrimage, and, and uh, um, there's a lot of reading involved as well so they can understand the history of the order, the nature of vow-taking, you know, and, and, and sort of everything they need to know to get their hearts ready for that moment. And then it culminates in a vow ceremony. Uh, this year it's online. <laughs> We're all gathering digitally from the four corners of the earth into the upper Zoom. And, uh, and there's this kind of beautiful liturgical moment where those of us who have already taken vows, we actually take off our rings and we say, God, we're so sorry for all the ways we've 
we've mucked up and broken our vows this year. And then we put our rings back on and then all the new candidates and the members alike step into that moment where we take our vows again before the Lord. And it's, it's a beautiful moment. And in the context of their preparation, what they do is they write a personal customary. So they take those six practices in their own context and they, they imagine and envisage what does this look like for me here and now? Because each of them is embedded in their own church, their own particular context. And we're encouraging people not, we don't want to create a new, we don't want to create an order of the mustard seed church. We want to empower them as they're embedded where God has planted them so that it can flourish in that place. And uh, so they write a personal customary, their own uh, contextualized version of their rule of life. And then that carries them into the future. So, so that's the journey. It's a beautiful journey. It's a transformational journey, really. This year we've got uh, 80 people on that journey, probably 65 of which will be taking vows in a week from now (laughs) at our 24-7 gathering. Yes. So. That's brilliant. Thanks for that explanation. And it gives us an insight into how the Order of the Mustard Seeds um, evolved and flourishing now, you know, as, as a strain within our movement. And uh, love that. Um, so lastly, Jill, would you just give a context for where you sit right now and what sort of miracle um, we're <laughs> experiencing with that, with being in the setting that you're in and maybe some of the forecast of vision um, for this idea of a mother house or, a, 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 you know, whatever is being described around Waverly Abbey and its journey to get there in your current situation. Sure, Pete, do you want to speak into this as well? Yeah, Pete's you go first. He's the one who lured me in. Pete invited me. I was, I remember walking through the ruins. So what we've got right outside my window are the ruins of Waverly Abbey. And so that is uh, 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 the ruins of Cistercian Monastery, the first monastery, Cistercian Monastery in the UK established in 1128. Um, and, and, but, but not only that, before that, at the time of the Council of Whitby, King Cadwellan, the local Celtic king, had given the land around 700 for a prayer community. So we're talking, there's been prayer on this site over a millennia. That's ridiculous, right? It's a, and, and with the Celtic monastic impulse right at the very beginning in these Celtic monastic site, you know, it would, it would have been prayer and education and the nurturance of community and, and this outward focus. And of course, as in the Cistercians, Waverly Abbey went on to plant another 11 abbeys across the UK. So historically, it was a, a mother house that, that pushed the gospel to the edges of this lovely island called the UK. And so there's this heritage, there's a, there's a, a well that's been dug here. There's seeds sown into the ground of lives given to prayer and mission and justice. And God in his kindness invited us by virtue, by a, in, a, in the guise of an invitation from the organization that owns this land. So CWR, which is now just rebranded as, as Waverly Abbey is, is a, uh, They've been on this property since 1955. So it was Selwyn Hughes planted here. Do you want to talk about Selwyn for a minute, Pete? I think he's just every day with Jesus is how we're known. He was just super passionate about helping people engage with the scripture to encounter Jesus every day. Is that what else should we say about him? uh, Oh, you're doing great, Jill. Yeah, I mean, 
I don't know, guys. I think we believe the Holy Spirit can fill places as well as people. Yeah. And that land can carry the presence of God. Um, when we were first invited into this space that Jill's describing, which is of momentous spiritual historical significance, I took one of our prophetic friends, Jill Webb, uh, Bill Kuzak, down to the site. <laughs> and as we walked around it, he could literally hear the prayers coming out of the ground. Um, and I don't doubt that. I, I don't get those kind of things, but I don't doubt. He said to me he felt like if he pressed record on his iPhone, he could record it. He could hear the prayers. But it seems to me that when you've had prayer on a site for 1,400 years, like going right back closer to the Lord Jesus by far than, you know, um, something gets embedded in the space. The Celts called it a thin place, you know, where the, the veil between heaven and earth is particularly porous. And so, yeah, King Kedwala uh, made it a place of prayer from the 7th century through to the 12th century. Uh, then the Cistercians under Bernard of Clairvaux's leadership uh, built proper stone buildings there. So that's from the 1100s through to the 1500s, 400 years, not just to praying, but working the land, caring for the sick, educating kids, all the stuff we talked about. Um, spectacular, vast buildings. I don't know, Joe, if you're able to let me, sh give me permission to share, I can show people a picture. And then, uh, and then Henry VIII banned the monasteries. And uh, so the, the thing dissolved. And uh, uh, and then, you know, along comes this guy, Selwyn Hughes, leading a phenomenal ministry called uh, CWR, which stood at the time for Crusade for World uh, Revival. And um, they made this their headquarters, um, the, 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 this incredible house next to these ruins. Let me show you this picture. Here's, here's some of the ruins there. That's, that's, if it wasn't dark, that's just, pretty much spitting distance from where Jill is sitting right now. It's one of the old buildings. Hollywood uses this as a set, you know. Jill's sitting in the adjacent house, which goes back to the uh, 18th century and was built by former Chancellor of the Exchequer. So that's the second most senior politician in the land. Florence Nightingale used to hang out in the house and so on. This is an incredible site. And, and CWR runs a, has been doing daily devotionals for many years, over a million users at its peak, um, helping people to encounter God each day through through Scripture. They're the leaders of um, Christian counseling training in Europe. Uh, my own wife Sammy is training there right now, and so they they've invited us to partner with them in really reopening the well of prayer in that place. And so you'll be hearing the themes that we've been talking about throughout this time together coming through. Here we have a place of prayer in physical space that is also seeking to engage missionally, uh, uh, educationally, you know, pastorally, binding up broken hearts, counseling, and so on, so on and so forth. So this is the apostomonastic impulse. And I knew that when that conversation began, there was no one better in the world to head that up than Jill. 
And I was so thrilled when she agreed to relocate country, she and Kirk. And um, it's early days, it's very, very small, but we're beginning to reopen that space. We hope that one day it'll become a mother house for the whole 24-7 prayer movement as we seek to plant apostomonastic communities around the world at a time where people are looking for new models of community, how to do relationship, how to do family, how to um, engage with the land, how to live in rhythm with the seasons, how to have a holistic faith that integrates creativity and commerce with prayer. And, um, you know, the Lord said to me, if we, if we do it here, other people will do it everywhere else because everyone is looking for models right now. Of how do you build types of church that aren't just congregational? Those are good and important and necessary, but are more digging into the monastic and the apostolic streams of the church. And so no pressure, Jill. That's what she's trying to develop there, but it's very early days in a very amazing location. Yeah. Great, you said it well, Pete. I don't know that I have anything to add. We're calling it the seed community right now. We just feel like we're just kind of sowing ourselves into the ground, cultivating this space and watching to see what grows. And I think the beautiful thing about seed is they're small, they're not much to look at, but certainly with a mustard seed, they proliferate <laughs> and they mm -hmm. just spread and become, you know, they just, they just cover the earth. So that's the vision that we're carrying. Wow. So thank you guys so much. This is like exactly the frame I wanted to put around this idea and its expression within our movement. Historically rooted, rich tradition, and also this experimental, you know, unfolding of, uh, unfolding of it within our generation, but that this is what's characterizing a bit of the shape of our work and our future together. How are we going to build these communities um, that have this more holistic um, rhythm and social constructs of the kingdom happening, you know, and, and, and it's just a beautiful thing. And I think I'm hungry for it. And I know I'm another generation coming up, boy, you know, you start describing this space and I think there's something that could awaken to say, could, could our expression and our generation of the church, you know what I mean, really apply ourselves to that sort of uh, apostolic, monastic, uh, beautiful uh, movement, you know, but also learn how to, how to sit within the, the ebb and flow of prayer and mission and the rhythms of life and getting back into the work of our hands and creativity and, you know, just something that is an integrated life instead of a, you know, an extricated life that is binary and dualistic mm -hmm. and stuff. And so, man, I love it. I just love this stuff. Thank you so much, you guys. This is like longer than any of our teachings, but <laughs> this is this, I think this is pointing at something, right? I think we're pointing at, at a hopeful future and something that the Lord's given us to steward together. And obviously giving the first fruits uh, to garden in the plot. So thanks so much, Pete. Great to have you. Mm -hmm. And Jill, 
lovely. Great. Right. Thanks. Thanks for the chance to talk about the things that we love to talk about. Hey, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Good. Thanks, Joe. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Thanks, Joe. Have a, yeah. Have a great uh, time in your, your groups having a discussion about these things. And I'm sure your imaginations are running wild and um, hopefully some questions that we'll curate for you will help you dig in a bit with each other on this idea of apostomonasticism and it's marrying marrying to our movement in our, our current moment together. So, <laughs> all right, bless you guys. Thanks. Peace. Bye-bye. <laughs>